0: Today's episode will be a little bit different than what we normally do uh, here on the Door County Pulse podcast. Um, Andrew and I usually talk through the issues of the week or events coming up. Um, sometimes just talk about our, our own pet peeves, of course. and Or we interview local people about what's going on in our community. A couple of weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the local protests and the reactions of local Um, police leaders and law enforcement leaders in regards to what was going on all around the country. And, you know, we've been thinking a lot about that, talking about this a lot in our offices about what is the best way for us at the Peninsula Pulse and Door County Living and with this podcast and our video programs, what is a way that we can talk about it or cover it that adds to the story and more importantly adds to the conversation that so many of us are having at home and in our communities and in our civic life right now. Um, It's important, you know, one of the things we've always tried to do at The Pulse is drive the conversation forward, is look for solutions, present ideas, if nothing else, not just be a stenographer, not just to say this happened and this happened and this was the result, but more of this happened but this is a possibility. Here's something that we could do and present solutions and, and be part of the problem solving, not just telling the story of it. And I think about that a lot with this topic. And one thing I found myself thinking back to is when I first moved to, to Chicago in 2011 and came across a program called Cure Violence, started by um, a man named Gary Sludkin in the mid nineties, who is an epidemiologist and started to approach violence in the inner cities from a public health standpoint, looking at it as as a contagion and something to be knocked out at its root cause rather than something to be enforced. And he started a program that would send violence interrupters into neighborhoods and into conflicts right as they were heating up. So people start to get in an argument. It looks like it could escalate potentially into violent acts or shooting um, or an assault of some sort. And these are neighborhoods where people, you know, they are they don't have the same relationship with the police that we might have here in Door County. They're not going to knee jerk, call a police officer to solve that problem. They're, they're going to solve it themselves or with family or friends or potentially gang members. And, This was a way to go and have a a resource for these people to call in those moments that wouldn't be involving police and the criminal justice system right away, but could de-escalate it before it became an enforcement issue and have it just be a prevention issue. And as I thought about that, I gave it a stab and um, was able to get Charles Ransfield, the Director of Science and Public Policy of Cure Violence, to spend some time with us on the podcast and talk about what they do. And And part of this reasoning for doing this is the conversation has evolved into what we expect police to do, maybe defunding the police. And what does defunding the police mean? If we defund the police, who takes over the functions that we've, as a society, then come to rely upon them for, from mental health checks to responding to potential violence situations? I don't think a lot of us have ever thought about a different way to do that. Some have, but a lot of us haven't. And cure violence is one different way to look at and approach those problems. So I thought it would be um, enlightening to some of our listeners just to, to, to hear that conversation and see what what kind of form something might take. And this is an instance where these are people taking on problems that are the, the ones that we would almost certainly say, well, this is where the police do have to intervene. This is violent. You, this is where you do want an officer with a weapon. And this is a program that said exactly the opposite. And we're going to send in social workers and former gang members and people who have respect in these communities to de-escalate the situation. The idea just being, let's have a conversation about what's out there and what else might work. And Charles Ransfield was uh, kind enough to give us about an hour of his time to talk about that, talk about public health, our response to COVID, the perception of public health in this country right now, um, given some of the conspiracy theories and politicization of health that we've seen over the last three months and i just hope uh hope you like it i hope you find it helpful and that it creates more discussion for you and for for our listeners to send back to me and us here at the pulse and you know we're we're continuing to seek out other conversations to have um some people are are very hesitant to have these conversations publicly when you talk about race and some of the issues that we're dealing with right now. But we're going to keep um, trying to have them and drive the conversation forward and hopefully bring some new ideas and thoughts to the table um, for our community. So uh, with that, I I think you'll find this a, a very interesting conversation. Charles a very interesting guy um, with a lot of viewpoints that we maybe don't necessarily get to hear a lot in Door County. So with that, Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and joining me today on the podcast is Charlie Ransford, the Director of Science and Policy for Cure Violence um, in Chicago, and actually a program that works internationally. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: I wanted to have you on because as we talk about police reform all over the country, um, even in our little hamlet up here in Door County, um, we hear calls to defund the police. Uh, That... Begs a question, obviously, of if not the police, then what? Uh, you know, our the police have been the only option for so many things that we handle um, across the country. Your program, Cure Violence, is one example of of an alternative that's actually taking on one area where most of us would probably assume that armed police are the only answer, um, which is violence pre- prevention in really some of the hottest zones in some of our um, most troubled cities, troubled neighborhoods. Can you tell me what the origins of Cure Violence are and how the program works?
1: Yeah, sure. So Cure Violence is a public health approach to violence prevention. And so we use the methods of public health to address violence uh, as a public health issue. And so first of all, why do we address it as a public health issue? It's because violence itself is a contagious problem. And this is like the most important hard to understand. That the people themselves who are committing violence, that they aren't bad people and that we should stop understanding them as criminals and thugs and we should start to understand that they have a problem of exposure, of trauma, and they're acting violently because they've been exposed to violence themselves. And, you know, this isn't about forgiving violent acts. People need to be held accountable. But it's about predicting when the violence is going to come so that we can get ahead of the violence and prevent it from ever happening in the first place. And so the way in which Cure Violence does this is by using the methods associated with other contagious problems, you know, the way in which you control other contagious problems. First of all, you interrupt transmission. So you stop a violent act before it happens, transmitting that violence, exposing a person to that violence. Uh, and there's a lot of ways you do this. You can train people to mediate conflict. You can train people to detect when something might happen. You know, they can know when somebody was disrespected in the community or when something happened at the party last night or when somebody was robbed. And they can get, meet those people in the community and they can actually settle the conflict before it becomes a lethal problem and then secondly we we identify the people who we know are most likely to be violent and then we work with them to reduce their risk addressing whatever problems they might have in their life maybe you know they have problems with violence in their home maybe they have problems with uh, obtaining a job or a drug addiction problem we help them address whatever is driving their individually what is driving their violent behavior and then third we address the community norms and so a lot of times the violence that's happening, we think of it as being a bad person, but a lot of times it's, it's a young person who is really being influenced by his peers who are egging him on to do something. And a lot of times you ask a person who committed a violent act uh, in a city, you ask them you know, why they did it. And a lot of times what we hear is, you know, I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I had to. That I felt like if I didn't do it, my friends wouldn't respect me. Or I felt like uh, if I didn't do it, I would become a victim. And so breaking down those norms and those expectations of violent behaviors actually is a huge piece of, of the solution to this problem. And so when we take this sort of public health approach to getting ahead of the problem of violence, we're really able to drop the levels of violence in communities. Some communities we work in have gone a year or more without a shooting or killing. Uh, when they used to have several every single year. And we are averaging, you know, 40 to 70% drops in violence in the communities that we work in consistently.
0: Well, I was just going to say, and when you're talking about this and you're talking about specific neighborhoods, people who, I I lived in Chicago for six years before moving back home to Door County. And one thing that I think outsiders maybe don't understand about some of these cities where they hear, "Well, Baltimore is very dangerous or Chicago is very dangerous. um, You're talking about like, very close relationships in very specific neighborhoods, if I'm understanding this correctly and if I understand the program correctly, because most of the violence happens in, in small areas. It's not like all of Chicago is popping off every night. There are very specific neighborhoods where a lot of these shootings and the most violent um, actions occur, correct?
1: Yeah. If you look at the maps, historically, the the same areas of the city uh, of whatever particular city we're talking about, have been violent, and it's a, been a problem in, in a lot of instances for decades. And these are particular portions of the city. Some cities that are um, that have a larger problem, it's most of the city, a city like Baltimore, for instance, or Camden, New Jersey. It's, it's going to be most of that city that has a violent problem uh, just because of the particular situation and environment of that city. A place like Chicago... Um, you know, there are particular neighborhoods on the south side and the west side and some on the north side that have had problems historically, places like Englewood, uh, Austin, um, and then on the north side, uh, places like um, Uptown. Uh, so, I mean, there are definitely places that are historically the problems, and then there are areas of the city which have not had much violence historically.
0: So how does it, how effective is it, uh, a program like Cure Violence or Ceasefire? Exactly what, I guess, like in practice, how do these programs work?
1: So the program is extremely effective, and furthermore, it's, it's effective right away. Uh, we have really quick uh, results of the program, and we, we see within the first month that we get these drops uh, in violence of 40 to 70% and sometimes being able to shut down violence. And so the way in which we do that and why that we see that these kind of results is because really what we're doing is we're inserting into the community another option, another alternative people to turn to and so I think you know from the outside the violence can seem random the violence can seem uh, you know like, like like something that it cannot be explained but inside the community people know what's going on they know that that violence resulted because of what happened the night before or they know that this particular individual is carrying a gun and is, has been involved with illegal activity. So it's predictable both in the circumstances and also the individuals. And so because we can predict it, when our workers go in, we can immediately respond to situations and to individuals to, to tamp down the violence. And so you know, in a community itself, when we have a cure violence program, now all of a sudden when there's a conflict brewing in a community, that person could call a cure violence violence interrupter to help them settle that dispute without having to resort to violence. Or maybe a loved one, a mother, knows that her son is involved in something. And, you know, they're not going to want to call the police on their son in a lot of instances. They don't really have any other alternative. But when pure violence is there, they have a violence interrupter that they can call who can go there and help talk their son or their loved one or their friend out of doing something violent. Maybe a lot of times it's the person who themselves is fearing that they're going to be a victim. And so they can contact a violence interrupter and say, "Hey, this person is after me. Can you help me settle this dispute, so like that we can, I can, you know, survive this this conflict that, that I'm having right now?" And so really, it's just putting another alternative in that community who can stop things before the police ever need to get involved. And so you know, you you introduce this this whole topic by talking about how people don't understand how we can get rid of the, how we can you know reduce the role of police. And first of all, it's important to understand that there is a role for police. You know, when people break the law, we need to enforce that law. But there is so much we can do before the fact to stop those laws from ever being broken. We can identify the people who we know and we can meet those people on the street and we can address whatever issues that person is dealing with to talk them out of it. And really what we have today in today's world is we have the police who are just dealing with too much. They're being, they're being burdened by too much. They're being expected to be the mental health counselors. They're being expected to deal with, with situations that aren't crimes, that are lower level sort of grievances and things like this. These are all things that can be dealt with by non-police people. They can be dealt with by mental health professionals or violence interrupters or outreach workers. And so really, it's, it's, this is not about getting rid of the police. This is not about replacing the police. This is about reducing the burden on police so that we can get ahead of the problem and we can stop the crimes from ever being committed. And so that we can make communities safer and not have to resort to police coming into a community to deal with things when it's too late.
0: Well, you make a great point there in that what we expect out of police in terms of um, being able to go in and be a, a riot control uh, to stop speeding vehicles, and but then also to be a mental health professional or a domestic abuse counselor in in a moment, in a very tense moment, like the most difficult times of those particular problems. And you think of when, what does somebody who actually pr- like spends their life doing that, they they go for advanced degrees, they spend years studying just that very specific thing, to be able to be good at that. And then we are are asking police to go and then do those same jobs.
1: Yeah. And there's one other, I think there's an important aspect to keep in mind here too. And that is almost always in cities, the police officer is somebody from outside the community who's coming into this community to settle a dispute or to deal with a mental health crisis or to deal with somebody who's, you know, on drugs or having some other sort of issue And when we're talking about outreach workers and violence interrupters, it's somebody who's hired from that exact same community, not from the same city, but from the same specific community who is very credible with the people in that community, who knows the people in the community, who, if they don't know you personally, they know somebody that you know, you know, one degree of separation away. And so, yes, these are people who are very trained in the methods of mediation, very trained in how to deal with. Uh, particular situations or how to refer people to particular services that they might need, but they're also extremely credible. And so I think if people just, I think should reflect upon themselves that they found themselves in an extremely tense situation, extremely heated situation, would you want somebody from your neighborhood to come to help you out? Or would you want somebody from a completely different community to come and try to settle your problem? I think it's pretty obvious that having people from the same community, to help solve the problems before the become crimes is just a much more effective, much more safe, and much more, I think, acceptable way of solving these types of problems.
0: You know, that uh, just to make this touch home for for folks in our neighborhood, and our community, um, when in the last year there was talk of um, contracting out our local emergency services, not the police, but our first responders and um, ambulance services, And a lot of people talked to me about that at the time and said, I don't want that. I want our local, I want to make sure that like when I'm in that crisis or when my dad dies, a particular individual told me about when his dad died, knowing that someone he had known his whole life was the first responder who came there and helped their family at that time made it just so much more um, calming and like just put them at ease in that really difficult situation. Now that's not a violent situation, but um, you can see like locally how that knowing your neighbor yeah. is there to help you in that time makes a big difference to people. And we value that in that situation. So you can totally understand why somebody would vi- value that in a potentially life-threatening situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what's standing in the way, I think probably for the community, that you're talking about with the emergency responders, is, well, they were probably trying to deal with a resource issue, trying to do things a little bit cheaper. Right. And what were they sacrificing? They were sacrificing something that was really important to the community. Um, and, and so hopefully they walked that back and didn't do that. And so what we're dealing with uh, with the communities that that we work in is a resource issue. That like these communities do not have the resources, do not have the funding from the city, do not have the funding from anywhere is that to hire workers who are from the community to be able to help them solve the problems. And so really, this is a resource problem. We need to prioritize this sort of uh, credible, acceptable way of handling problems within the community itself. We need to support communities and increase their capacity to be able to solve the problems themselves before they get out of control. And I think we find that that was a much more efficient, effective way of doing things not only from a monetary perspective, but also from a personal mental health, physical health perspective. Because we're getting in front of problems before they happen. People aren't being traumatized, people aren't being hurt. And so they're able to themselves have a life that is, is much less affected by the problems of violence.
0: Where, so where do you find your interrupters who, who step in and, and how do you find people willing to do that?
1: Wherever we go, we always find more people than we can hire. And the reason for this is, first of all, there are a lot of people who have had a, um, you know, have had a a background experience that has has led to illegal activity, has led to time in prison, that makes them very qualified and credible to be an outreach worker or violence interrupter. Uh, And and they're having, you know, they have a hard time with a felony record finding other jobs, Uh, but they want to turn their lives around and they're ready to make this commitment to, to learning this new skill and to being this change agent in their community. And so we get dozens of people uh, wanting this, this work. And so when we show up in a community, it's, it's rather easy but uh, to find people. You know, they show up at our door. They come to our meetings, and they're asking us whether they can apply for this job. But the way that we really, I think, find that the best workers is we work with community organizations and we work with local stakeholders, you know, it might be a religious leader, it might be a political leader, it might be just a business owner or somebody who's just prominent in the community otherwise, who know the people in the community and know who people are going to listen to, know who has that credibility that's going to be able to, you know, it's, when I say credibility, it's not just, you know, the person from the same community who is the same race and the same background. It's got to be somebody who people trust, who people know and trust and so that this person can not only go on the street corner where there are the people who are carrying guns and the people doing illegal activity they can they can it's not just that they go to that corner but that they can go there and be influential hmm. that they can talk to that person and that person is going to hear them and respond to them and engage with them and have this kind of deep conversation that can then lead to our outreach worker to asking them having them question why they're using a gun why they're they're being violent, why they might be doing this illegal activity. And so it's that kind of trustworthiness that we're looking for. And we find that by talking to the people in the community about who is already influential, who's already credible, who can play this role in the community. And, and then, and then when we do find these people, we are very careful about who we hire. We have a hiring panel and on that hiring panel, you know, we sit on the hiring panel. We a lot of times have a police representative on that hiring panel. Uh, We have members of the community and we all meet this person and we talk about this person and, you know, somebody might know something about this individual that might suggest that they're still on the other side of the law, that they might still be doing illegal things and so then we would not hire that person. You know, we really do careful research. Uh, We also go out in the community with a potential hire a hiree and we, you know, we look at how people uh, react to them. You know, when they go on the street corner, are people listening to this individual are they turning their back on this individual? Um, um, you know, making fun of this individual? Or are they really engaging with the individual? And so, you know, there's just a lot of ways in which we make sure there's a lot of people wanting this job, but we want to find the best people, the people most influential, the people who can really reach the, the people who are actually doing the violence. And so this is what separates pure violence from every other violence prevention program that I've ever read about, which is that we reach the people most likely to commit violence but a lot of programs are out there who help a lot of people who do a lot of good work but to really reduce violence you have to get those few people who are the most violent the ones most likely to do a shooting and we're really effective at doing that by hiring the right people and by really focusing and targeting on uh working with only those who are most likely to be violent Hmm.
0: and then and some of these interrupters are former gang members or who have probably been in jail themselves correct
1: yeah absolutely some are some aren't uh you know it, 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 that sort of experience can make you credible and oftentimes does you know we have people that have served more than 20 years in prison we have people that have you know served time for you know all sorts of different types of offenses but we also have people that have college degrees and people with graduate degrees uh, you know we have people that are uh, you know, licensed in, in social work who do this work. Um, so it, you don't have to be a particular background. In, in, in I, and I really, uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate when people try to classify our workers in this way, because really the, the key thing is, is not whether you've served time or whether you've been in a gang. The key is, are you credible? Uh, can you have this conversation on that street corner? Are you from that community Do people trust you? And so we find that in different walks of life. And, um, and you know, it, and furthermore, I'd say that for people who do come from a background, for people who have served time in prison or have been involved in gangs, when they come to cure violence, uh, it's really a, it's, it's a way of, of changing their lives. It's a way of professionalizing them. It's a way of taking their experience and giving them something positive that they can do from that experience. Hmm. And so we really... I, you know, I really hesitate to ever classify our workers as former this or former that because what they are today is is so much beyond what they might have done in the past. And I don't like to, you know, I think judge people by what they might have done one time in the past. I think the people that come to work for us have proven themselves in many ways. They've made up for anything that might have happened in their past. And they are truly professional, qualified, credible people who are, are doing just amazing work in
0: saving lives. Well, those are important points about the uh, people's past and, and how they get to where they are because it's, you're not like once a criminal, always a criminal. Right. And, um, and
1: yes, yes, exactly.
0: The more you learn about certain neighborhoods and when it's pretty easy and I, I, I felt the same way in Chicago in in my neighborhood where I lived in East Humboldt Park, which, um, mm-hmm. not, not a terrible neighborhood, but still some pretty sketchy parts of it. Um, still some shootings. Yeah. Um, maybe it's, it's better now. It's been about four years. But there, it was very easy to dismiss. If you heard about violence, you maybe get scared for a second. And then it would said oh, it was uh, gang related. And you almost just like shove it to the back of your head and go, oh, okay, good. It's just gang on gang. And it's a horrible way to think of it, but I think that's how most of the city does. As long as it stays in those neighborhoods, then you get, people really start to get concerned if it spills into Lincoln Park or The Loop or <laughs> the downtown business districts. And, but as long as it stays in those neighborhoods, you sort of feel safe and mm-hmm. ignore it. And you, you can definitely do that when you say gang on gang, or if something happens to somebody, they say, well, he was gang-related or gang-affiliated. In some of these neighborhoods, it's almost impossible to not be somehow labeled as gang-affiliated through a relative or just to get by in your neighborhood and survive. Um, and so yeah. I, I think we can paint that, that term with a broad brush, but, and I think maybe in some terms it's, it's a way for us to have an excuse to say, okay, that, that person's life didn't matter as much.
1: What we're, what we're really talking about here is, um, is is the way in which race plays a role Way in which we fund communities is what I believe. Um, I, I don't think you know. You, you said this. I think, which is that when it spills over into the downtown, people start worrying. Right. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, furthermore, I would say, you know, if a shooting happened in Naperville, shootings happen in Naperville, get very upset, and you see action. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Naperville being a suburb of Chicago. Yeah. You know, when, same thing in small towns or, or, you know, certain, certain communities, a big deal is made when violence happens. And then in other communities, when violence happens, the other way, people ignore it. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see any other way to explain this than other than race. If we cared about these communities the same way that we care about other communities, we would not allow any of this violence. And the fact that it's been going on decades, you'd think we'd declare an emergency and invest millions of dollars to solve it. But instead, we're not. Instead, we have to we have to argue and beg for a few dollars to hire outreach workers at minimum wage level wages, just to do work that they're putting their life on the line for, to stop violence and to save people's lives. I mean, I don't see how you could explain it any other way than it's, it's not being prioritized. Because of the racial dimension, because these are communities of color. If they were not communities of color, I do, I just, I just, I don't believe that uh, we would have the same sort of lack of response. And so, yeah, I mean, I think as today in our current culture, we're calling into question how police are treating communities of color and people of color. Um, I think along with that, we're also starting to question why we're not providing resources to communities of color. And, um, and I think that's the right, the right questions to be asking, because I think if we started providing those resources, if we started prioritizing solutions, it would be, it would not be a problem to be, to solve this problem. We, we can end violence in these communities. There are solutions. Cure violence is a way to do it. Uh, you know, the programs that we have running in Chicago, these are bare-bones staff being paid very low wages to do very dangerous work. You know, in Englewood, for instance, when we were working in Englewood, you know, we would have maybe seven or eight people to cover a community, you know, multi, with, with a dozen homicides or more, um, with 1,000 people, uh, seven or eight outreach workers. We needed three or four times that number, uh, but because of resources, we didn't have that. So it's, it's really about, we need to invest in these communities. Um, to me, a lot of what's happening with COVID is, is I think just a, also a great example and it's a great illustration because it's the same thing. It's a contagious problem that we're not investing the resources in that there are perfectly capable solutions out there. We see other countries, other communities implementing these solutions, mask wearing, public education enforcing social distancing, like really getting on top of this issue, but we're not doing that here. We're not investing the resources. We're not making masks freely available to everybody. And so therefore the problem is getting out of control and people might from in the inside think, well, this is just an epidemic problem. That's what happened. But no, there's actually solutions to these problems. And so the same thing is true of violence. We can get rid of violence in Chicago if we wanted to. We could, if we invested $40, 50000000 million which, by the way, is a fraction of the police budget. It's less than 1% of the police budget. If we invested that into violence prevention and to cure violence, Chicago would be a different city. It would drop by 50% or more. We'd see eventually violence becoming a thing of the past and communities that were once very violent becoming extremely safe. We'd see businesses flourishing. But because we haven't invested this money, and probably because we haven't invested in money because these are communities of color that we have not prioritized properly, um, we have not solved this problem yet. So I, I do think we can, and, and I'm hopeful that this this current climate will lead to these sort of solutions.
0: Well, we'll get back to COVID later and an entirely other top. Well, not another topic. They're very similar in, when you talk of it in terms of um, epidemics. Um, but you, you mentioned prevention, and you're taking these interrupters you know, in a sense, late in the game to be preventative right before it might have to be an enforcement measure. Um, you know, like in a place like Door County where I'm sitting right now, it, we sort of have those preventative measures our entire lives. You know, the school systems are very good. The community is very safe. You're brought up, um, in a community that has different ways of solving those problems. And that's not That's not a race thing. It's what you see. And like where I am here, if I call the police, I expect them to come. If there's even a minor fender bender or I hit a deer or I, or somebody broke in and stole $10 worth of goods here, I expect the police to come in and investigate that and pretty good chance that they're going to figure it out. Um, and because they have the resources and time to put into it, the same things happen in Chicago. Um, I was, phone jacked on the train once and chased the guy down, got the phone back. And when I showed up in court, the judge asked, what do you want out of this? I'm like, I don't know. They just told me to show up in court. So I'm here. And they they were kind of shocked that I even bothered to keep going because they just don't put the resources into that, um, into the the crime punishment, let alone the prevention end of it. And we actually had our, our home broken into into our bedroom, my now wife and I um, were sleeping and somebody broke into our back door of our apartment in Ukrainian Village and we slammed the door on them, shoved them out, we called the cops. Again, same sort of instance of like, yeah, probably not much we're going to do about this. And in this community, that would have been headline news, somebody broke into somebody's bedroom, there's a predator on the loose kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a different environment that that people in in this community can live with that people in that community don't. So what that breeds, and this is from conversations I've had with other people from those communities, but um, what I'm told is what that breeds is like, you don't expect the police to solve that problem. So you start to solve it on your own, whether that be through violence or retaliation, or, uh, you know, most murders are not solved. So when we say like, oh, he got away with murder. That's actually not that hard to do in this country because especially in a place like Chicago where they, they solve less than half of them, if I have that number correctly. So, um, I mean, do I, do I have that kind of thinking about some of these neighborhoods correctly about what they expect police and, and kind of the, the community apparatus to do?
1: First of all, um, in terms of police responsiveness, um, you know, that's obviously a policing issue. And so I think you should talk to uh, police about why a, a particular department might not be as responsive as another uh, department. Uh, I expect one that you would, you would hear that they're overwhelmed and that they're dealing with much more serious stuff. But I, secondly, I think if, if you don't, if you were uh, asking people who had a, a bit more of a, a national perspective, they would tell you that Chicago is pretty unique in terms of the police department. You can do some research easily and, and find a lot of examples and reports documenting that Chicago is sort of unique in, um, in having problems with police. Um, and, and hopefully with the new mayor, new police chief, hopefully they're dealing with a lot of that. Um, and I'm very optimistic that they will make some progress. But I think one of the things that you're really leaving out of this is the experience of the individual themselves that is in a community that is a violent community, say, let's just, for example, say in the city of Chicago. So, you know, it's, so there is this issue of, of, you know, wanting to call the police, you know, whether you're willing to call the police. And because of people's experiences, a lot of people are not willing to call the police because it would Hmm. put them in more danger or put somebody they know in more danger. And so there is, there is just a reluctance to call the police for that reason. And so a lot of times people maybe do either go or maybe take things into their own hands, uh, depending on the individual situation. Um, but th- I don't think that is a, a, you know, a cultural thing. I don't think that is a thing about a particular city or a particular race. I think what that is, is a police department across the country who have demonstrated that they're dangerous to certain people, to certain hmm. to people of color. And so therefore people are making a very rational and intelligent decision to not put themselves in danger. So I think, you know, why, why certain police departments in certain cities are not as responsive, I think that has a lot to do with it. But mm. secondly, I think more importantly is that for an individual in a violent community, their experience is exposure to a lot more stuff than a person in another community uh, is exposed to. Uh, you know, first of all, we, as we're well aware, there's the police violence that is You know, that for those of of us who were not aware before, we're now aware that it's not just a one-off experience, that it's something that people of color in cities experience consistently, um, and that it's near universal for people of color to experience this on some level, in some way, at some time. And for many people, it's repeated several times a year, a dozen or more times a year, having experiences that you or I would find. Uh, very offensive and objectionable, but yet other people are expected to endure it hmm. secondly you know there's there's other sorts of violence that people endure you know it might not be physical violence, but it may be it's violence in terms of lack of opportunity or being uh, discriminated against or um, you know otherwise being uh you know not offered the sorts of opportunities to make something of your life which can you know oftentimes lead to um, being given a limited set of decisions, a limited set of choices in your life that can lead to bad choices. And then also there is a tremendous amount of violence in these communities. And so for a person who's growing up or living in this community, the chances of them experiencing violence, uh, you know, I, I it's a, it's terrible to hear about your experience, you know, getting your home broken into that is a terrifying experience. It's by the way, much more common in communities of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, that a person is going to experience that kind of terror and not just kind of terror, but, you know, maybe having a gun put to their head or maybe being shot or maybe having somebody they know shot or murdered. Uh, so, you know, all of these are much more uh, frequent experiences in communities of color in certain cities. And so therefore the individual themselves is, is much more likely to be having, have been traumatized by these experiences and, you know, there are you know, ways in which we now understand this trauma that we didn't before. Uh, you know, things that we now know of, like PTSD uh, is something that we know from war settings. Well, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, that's happening in these communities, except with war, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. In the community, there's no post. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's an ongoing, it's a continuous uh, exposure to this trauma. And so it's a continuous uh, experience and it's this continuous trauma that is then always influencing them. And, you know, not just in the community, but a lot of people in the home, too. So the people we work with, that I've talked to, the people that are our clients, our participants in our program, a lot of times uh, when I ask them you know, about their home experiences, hundred percent of the time they've told me, people tell me that they have violence in their home. So people that are being violent in the community we often just kind of isolate that one behavior, but these a lot of times are people that have had really traumatic experiences in their home, in their sacred space. in that sort of supposed to be safe place, they've had traumatic experiences. And then in the community, they've had traumatic experiences and then the police have have given them traumatic experiences. And then they're not offered opportunities because of, and so when you add this all up, you just have a tremendous amount of trauma, a tremendous amount of ex- negative experiences. And so I, I, you know, all of this, I think, could lead us to understanding this problem of violence differently. So it's not just that, like, you know, we deal with problems differently in this community than we deal with in that community. It's that the entire experience of being in these two communities is different. And so what we need to do is we need to address that difference. We yeah. need to address the exposure that people have. We need to stop that exposure. We need to address the lack of opportunities that people are being offered. We need to address all these things that lead to the problems that we're scared of, lead to the problems of violence. We need to address them beforehand and get ahead of the problems and invest in the resources to do this. Which, by the way, invest, you know, I think a lot of people maybe start to put on the brakes when they hear invest because that means money. But it is so much cheaper to deal with the problem beforehand than to deal with the problem after the fact. Locking up a child, locking up a teenager in prison costs more than $70,000 a year. Locking up an adult in prison costs more than $20,000 a year, which, by the way, it should cost a lot more if we were doing it humanely. (laughs) Um, But, you know, dealing with the problem beforehand, you know, we can have an outreach worker deal with more than a dozen different people and help them prevent them from going to prison, prevent them from inflicting more harm and more violence onto a community and help them lead a more positive life. So, you know, this is just, it's the more humane way of doing things. It's the more efficient way of doing things. Um, but yes, something historically has led us to prevent, uh, has prevented us from investing in communities of color. And hopefully now, with this new movement, hopefully we will start to invest in these communities and see some real change.
0: Um, And thank you for putting kind of my one-off experiences into a a broader context there, because it was like, after having our home broken into, um, many days of just being on edge, not being able to focus, not being able to do my job, thinking about whether you need to move, whether your house is safe, whether that person's coming back, um, changing your locks, mm-hmm. yeah. all of those things, looking over your shoulder, um, yeah. whether you and your loved yeah. one are safe. And to think of like in those days after that, you know, I, I always thought I was pretty empathetic and had an eye toward what other people were going through in some of these communities, but it really made me go like, man, that that is every day in some places or yeah. or at least a lot of the days for certain people and for certain children, um, which is, you know, I'm a, a, I am was a grown man going through that and it was, it was still pretty startling. Um,
1: yeah, it, it's, it, I think it's, uh, it's uh, worthwhile to reflect on the symptoms of PTSD, you know, what this looks like, because you experienced this on some level. And so you had some of this. And, you know, your experience, I, I, I you know, I imagine it was terrible. And it sounds like it was really traumatic.
0: But I was and lucky. So Let's be experience- clear. Like it was okay. Nothing happened. Yeah, we exactly. got it. We, pre- we prevented anything worse from happening if my wife hadn't been (laughs) as quick as she was to jump out of bed and slam the door on the intruder, maybe they're sitting at the foot of our bed. And (laughs) so it's pretty
1: fortunate. So you were experiencing some of these mental health aspects of exposure to violence. You know, somebody invaded your, this is, although you weren't hurt physically, this was a violent sort of breaking into your home. This is something that you experienced. And, and so you had this sort of, Reaction, which is, you know, it, it is a textbook sort of reaction when people are exposed to trauma. You know, you, there are, you know, you have sleeplessness potentially, mm-hmm. you are more, more irritable, more, you know, more easy to anger. Uh, you are, uh, you know, depressed potentially. I mean, uh, and, and there are a lot of things that make you more on edge, more uh, reactive reacted to things, to cues. And so now imagine a community full of people that are more irritable, more hyper reactive to any sort of disrespect or any anybody sort of invading your space. People that are you know lack, lacking sleep because, because they've they've been having these traumatic had these traumatic experiences. I mean, it, there's no wonder there's violence in communities because you have people who have been exposed to violence, and this is what I mean by violence is contagious. That a person exposed to violence. It's diagnosable. They, you know, oftentimes experience these sort of reactions that can very easily lead to more violence. You know, if you're more hyperreactive because you've been traumatized by violence, then somebody tries to confront you with something, the 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 odds of that leading to something violent just are through the roof because you're much more reactive. They're probably also much more reactive, and so just this little this little disrespect or something that happened that could easily be brushed off by people who weren't traumatized. Well, now all of a sudden, uh, this, we have something that could be a a lethal event because we're dealing with people with untreated trauma. And so really I think, you know, what I really want people to take away is when you understand violence as contagious and when you see a person who is potentially going to be violent, what we should be seeing is a person with a health problem that's untreated. And a person who needs treatment and with treatment could overcome this health problem. And so when we start to understand the individuals like that, then we could start to heal people and start to heal communities and, and, and overcome this problem of violence.
0: So you have this, this pro- program in Cure Violence, and it's, it's shown that it, it works to varying degrees in different cities and different communities. And, but then when you go for funding, I know that in Chicago, there have been times like, and, and this isn't to say like you work like opposite of the police, uh, the programs work in coordination with police, but how is it received by police and city and like the criminal justice system in most communities at, or in this, in communities in Chicago, I know funding has been given and taken away. Um, is it seen as a threat to the police budget?
1: Um, Historically, it has never been seen as a threat to the police budget because um, police budgets have been pretty safe um, and pretty well guarded by, uh, you know, police unions and and other sorts of interests. Um, and in terms of like our reception with police, when we're in a community and when we've reached, you know, we we've managed that relationship. We've you know, met up with with police uh, captains and we met up with the speed level cops. Uh, what we find is we we can cultivate a great relationship and a relationship that is mutually beneficial where the police are able to, if they know somebody who's a problem in the community but hasn't crossed that line or at least hasn't been caught committing a crime, but they know that person's a problem, well, that person can now be referred to somebody. Instead of the police w- sitting back and just waiting to catch this person who they know is going to do something, well, they can re- they, they can call up those outreach worker and say, hey, You should keep your eye on this guy. See if you can talk to him. See if you can talk him out of something. Or a lot of times what happens in the community is there are people congregating on a corner and the police, you know, in the normal situation, the police would go there and break that that, that congregation up. They would, in some cases, that might lead to some violence. It might lead to arrest. It might lead to a situation like with George Floyd where where a person is, is injured or killed. Whereas if you have violence interrupters and outreach workers in the community, that police officer doesn't need to break up that street corner. He could just say to his friend, the outreach worker, Hey, can you help me out with this situation? Like this is leading to something that could be dangerous. And I was wondering if you could help me break it up. And in our outreach can go in there, knowing the people on the corner trust being trusted by the people in the corner and they could talk them into, Hey, can you go down the street? And how about you? You know, Hey, if you don't do this, you know, they might get you're drawing attention to the police. Do you really want to do that? Why? And they could talk people, out of whatever it is that, that they're doing. And so really like when when it's seen in the proper light, we're a tool for the police to be able to deal with situations that they can't deal with, that normally they would be called in to deal with, but they don't really have the ability to do it in, other than making arrests and cracking skulls. They can call in the outreach workers to deal with that situation. So we could take a lot of things off their hands. We can make their job a lot easier, a lot safer because some of these difficult situations and difficult individuals, we can get in there and deal with them and talk them out of things and prevent them from doing anything bad beforehand. And so that the police don't have to go in there and create a situation that is volatile, that is potentially dangerous, potentially lethal. Um, so we can deal with it. And so that's when it's seen in the proper light. Now I think there's also though, this sort of paradigm, this like perspective or lens in which we understand violence. And that lens is currently criminal justice. And I think, you know, you kind of opened the, the show with this idea of, of uh, you know, we, we're we used to turning to the police, you know, this is what we do. You know, when people think of violence, they think, well, that's a police problem. That's, you know, what can the police do to solve this problem? And so that's, that's because we're all in this criminal justice paradigm where our problems in our community, who solves them, the police solve them. Why? Well, that's all we have. That's that's how we solve problems. That's what we've been doing. We need to change that paradigm, and we need to start understanding a health perspective. That people who are being violent—that it's not bad people, not cops and robbers, where we have to catch people. It's a problem of health. That person has a problem of exposure. Why, instead of asking, you know, what did you do? You know, we're asking, you know, what happened to you to make you do this. We're at, you know, we're trying to understand a person's experience not to excuse things, uh, people have to be held accountable, but so that we could prevent anything from happening. Because when we understand a person's experience, understand that maybe they have a problem in their home that needs to be solved. Maybe they have a problem with drugs that need to be solved. When we understand the individual experience, we can solve those problems and we can prevent violence from happening. And so, you know, when, when it's understood, in that light, when we get away from understanding community problems as a police problem, we understand community problems as a health problem or as a community problem. Then we can start to understand these different solutions. And so, you know, it's not just police, but it's everybody in the general public has to start to understand communities and people differently, and not as a problem for police to deal with, but as a, as a, as problems that people in the health and social services field. Can, can address much more effectively because essentially these are health and social service problems, not policing problems.
0: You know, in our community, where this might um, connect again to, to people around here is um, like any place in rural Wisconsin, you do have a, a problem with drinking and driving. And you can either catch people when they have um, driven drunk or after they kill somebody else driving drunk or kill themselves or. You can take measures beforehand. um, To you know, there there are some programs where, um, in certain neighborhoods, where they have where they've had repeat offending drunk drivers, where they have gone around and police, rather than waiting for them to do it again, they go to the liquor stores, they go to the bars and say, "Hey, this guy just had his third DUI. He's hanging around this neighborhood. Here, just so you know, like if you serve him, the the likelihood of him driving drunk is pretty high. So, even that small measure is one one way to do that. And there's probably a much more concerted way of doing that um, to try and prevent people from getting the opportunity to get drunk, to get behind a wheel. Um, So a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways to intervene that don't fit our kind of structured paradigm of, oh, it's got to be police doing this enforcement action.
1: Yeah. and, And I think it's, that's a great example because that's an example of like, um, getting ahead of the problem of not sitting back and waiting for something to happen so you can make the arrest, but getting ahead of the problem and doing it in a way that's not about threat. You know, it's about going to the bartender who's probably friends with the guy and, and, and who can make this point to this individual in a different way that's not threatening, but that is, hey, I'm looking out for you and you don't want this to happen to you. I'm not going to let this happen to you. And so, I, you know, I think that's a great idea and I think that's like, how we need to start thinking about these problems is, uh, you know, not about catching the bad guys, but about helping people. Uh, you know, people DUIs, they have a health problem, by the way, they have an mm-hmm. alcohol problem that's diagnosed now understood as a health problem, a drug addiction now understood as not a criminal justice problem, but more so as a health problem. And we're going to eventually get to the point where we understand violent behavior as not a, a problem of bad people, not a criminal problem, but as a health problem um, that occasionally police need to be involved in, but a health problem that most of the time we manage and deal with with health people, just as we do with drug addiction, just as we do with alcohol, alcoholism.
0: You know, earlier you talked on uh, touched on the the pandemic, uh, the COVID crisis that everyone's dealing with, and our very disjointed response to it um, nationally city by city, state by state, county by county in the state, in, in the case of Wisconsin. Um, you're in the public health world. What, one thing that we've seen is people who generally would say like, well, this is just based on evidence that we have. So here's our recommendation are now being seen as political actors and health advice is being seen as um, political advice almost. Um, what is it like to be in your field and to, to be someone who deals with public health problems every day and to see this uh this cultural shift in it just the way that that your profession is being looked at or construed or
1: you know the uh the response to covid is uh it's just tremendously depressing uh, to me because we have the methods we have enough understanding to make this problem go away, other countries have been successful in making this problem go away. It's not very complicated. And it's as simple as social distancing, masks and washing hands and surfaces. and you know and when needed, there might be a, a, necessar- a need for having um, you know, stay-at-home orders if things are out of control, if things really need to be gotten under control in, in, in order to then be able to move forward with just the masks and social distancing and hand washing. So this problem, you know, we could look at New Zealand, we could look at Vietnam, we could look at a number of countries that have dealt with this much better than we have And it's clear that we're not doing the same things that we're doing, that they're doing. We are not wearing masks as a rule, like they are doing. Uh, we are not maintaining social distancing, uh, like they are doing. And so we're failing and we're, we're, we're having, a lot of unnecessary depth because of that. So, it, you know, it's tremendously sad for me to see that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in terms of um, the politicization of public health, you know, pu- public health is a field that is, by uh, design, tries to be neutral, um, as, does the field, as does the field of health. You know, it's designed to do no harm. It's the people are trained to not pick political sides, to maintain statements that are uh, not political. And the reason for this is because, um, you know, we want our advice and our, um, our expertise to be trusted and we want people to see us as not being biased. Um, and so we try to maintain that as much as possible. Um, and so, you know, things like mask wearing, the advice of mask wearing, uh, it needs to be not political. It's being politicized, but people need to resist that because it is not wearing a mask is, is not a political act. Um, you know, wearing a mask, honestly, wearing a mask is so similar to the advice of wearing a condom. If you have multiple sex partners, Uh, you know, not not doing so is putting yourself in danger, putting others in danger more than anything else. Uh, You know, it's it's a behavior that we're not used to doing, that like it's something new, something uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. something we, we, we were resistant to. But it's something where the science is really clear, that it really drops your risk. And not only does it drop your risk, but in terms of the community's risk, it really drops the numbers. And so, you know, this is just another example of a, a a sort of new behavior that's needed by people because of an epidemic disease. You know, we had new behaviors because of AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of Asian countries had new behaviors because of SARS. Now because of of COVID, we have a new behavior that we need to wear masks. And so people need to understand that this makes them and and everyone around them safer. and, and I, I'm starting to see now just recently that it's sort of becoming more depoliticized. We're seeing people on, um, on both sides of the aisle now recommending uh, face mask wearing. And so I, that is encouraging. It's, it's late in the game for that. And a lot of people have needlessly died because we haven't done that earlier. But we can do that. We can do it now. We can get on top of it now if everyone really starts following these rules like we're supposed to we can really get on top of this epidemic and end it. Um, and so I'm still hopeful that that people will understand that public health is a neutral field, that public health is trying to help everybody, including people on both sides of the aisle, especially people on all sides of the aisle, people, everybody. Um, and so I, you know, this is something we need to manage as public health people. We need to make sure that we're, that our image is, is protected, that we still are seen as trustworthy people. We have a lot of work ahead of us as public health people to make sure that that happens. And you're right that this is a dangerous time in terms of public health, that if people lose trust in public health, um, it's really gonna be dangerous because this is... Co- we have COVID now, but there are a lot of other epidemics that could very easily break out. There's a, you know, a recent uh, pig flu that was recently identified There's another mosquito-borne illness that has been identified that, that might break out. So, you know, we really need to start trusting the public health approach, the public health system, because our lives depend on it. And other countries are doing this. Other countries are stronger because they're trusting public health. And so if we want to maintain our status as a strong country, we need to get behind public health to protect our communities.
0: Um you mentioned the age crisis and I was 10, 12 years old as that was, uh, blowing up in the country. And it is fascinating actually to think about that in terms of the behavioral changes and the educational, um, efforts that went into that period, probably from like 1988 to 92, 93 ish, um, versus mm-hmm. today. Um, and that, in that period, I like, I just don't remember that ever being so political other than like the fact that, Uh, Ronald Reagan wouldn't mention it for so many years and that many people saw it as a a gay disease. But I mean, in terms of once they recognize that we're going to, this is a national crisis, like it was well accepted and public health seemed to be very trusted on the national scale um, and with the recommendations. And if we could get that way now, if we could just eliminate that and then we could just talk about, we can play politics with the funding and everything. But like, let's get to a point where we recognize that like, hey, this is the the best people we know on this are saying this is the thing we should do, so let's try that for a while. (laughs) At least get to that basic level, and we Mm -hmm. could move forward.
1: Well, the AIDS example is just a really great example because I think people are familiar with it in the U.S. and experienced it, and so I think they see a lot of it. But, you know, it's really interesting how you presented this because, you know, 88 to 93, yeah, there was a real effort to really get on top of this. But, you know, the AIDS epidemic broke out in the early 80s. I think Mm -hmm. it was 1981 in the U.S., and so between 1981 and 1988, there was a lot of politicization and a lot of, also a lot of uh, stigmatization. That's a great uh, point. So HIV, HIV was seen as a problem of gay men. You know, it was a gay men problem. And it was, we, we really stigmatized gay men because of HIV AIDS. And, and it was also politicized because of that in the same ways, in similar ways that, that COVID is being politicized. And that happened for years, years that happened. And by the way, it wasn't without cost. It wasn't like that, you know, that the the, the HIV, first of all, crisis was able to spread in the U.S. because we did not get on top of it in the way that we could have. And furthermore, it really spread in Africa because we are failing to invest in solutions and prevention in Africa in the ways that were needed to really get on top of that crisis. So it was a totally preventable crisis as well. And was allowed to get out of control because of these sort of biases and this sort of politicization. And so what happened with, Oh, by the way, also like HIV, you know, there, there, there's no vaccine for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's not, you know, we had this 40 years later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, we're hoping for a COVID vaccine and yes, it's maybe a little bit easier in terms of the, 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 uh, the biology of it. But like, um, but yeah, we're still waiting for the AIDS vaccine, and we might still be waiting for this COVID vaccine for a number of years in the same way. But what happened with HIV AIDS that really changed is, is really leadership, is we had people stand up and really were leaders on this issue to make it not a political issue, to make it not something that we are stigmatizing people with and, and being uh, biased towards people because of but like we were actually dealing with it in terms of a health crisis. And so like, you know, in terms of leaders, there was, I can't remember his name right now, but the president of Uganda, like for Africa really changed things in, in his country In Uganda. U- Uganda was the one place, the first place that really reversed the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And it was done through the help of the WHO. Actually, my boss Gary Slutkin was very heavily involved in that. And, and, and the, but the president of Uganda made a huge difference And why, Because everywhere he went, every speech he gave, he talked about AIDS and he talked about wearing a condom. He talked about limiting sex partners. He was everywhere he went, he was spreading the understanding of how to keep yourself safe, the understanding of how this would spread. And so that's the kind of leadership. You know, it's not just saying it once. It's not just putting out a report. It's saying it over and over again, using the sort of Coca-Cola Nike advertising method of just repeating it so much that it's ingrained in your brain and you understand the transmission of this disease and you understand how to keep yourself safe. And then, you know, and then also, like in terms of leadership, there's a lot of, I think, famous, prominent people who could play a role. HIV-AIDS, you know, I really am brought back to Bono of U2 and how he really changed the landscape of the AIDS response by a simple meeting that he had with Jesse Helms. And you can research this, it's, uh, I think it's documented on the internet in different places, but where basically Bono, as a Christian, sat down with Jesse Helms as a Christian, and he had a conversation about, as a Christian, our response to the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Africa. And he had that conversation in a credible, trustworthy manner as a fellow Christian, and he made his case, and he changed Jesse Helms' mind on this. And that's what unlocked millions of dollars of funding for Africa to battle this AIDS epidemic and that's what really changed the HIV AIDS epidemic and why we're now able to be in a different place than we were you know obviously it's still a very prominent uh, and, and, and disease that, it, that is out there there is very dangerous but it's not the disease that it was it's not out of control like it used to be and we're we're managing it in a way that's much more effective than we were before and a lot of that's because of leaders leaders like president of Uganda be the leaders like Bono were able to step up and really convince people, make it a non-political case, make it something that everybody can get behind. That's what we need to happen with COVID. We need that sort of repetitive messaging, wear a mask, wear a mask. And this coming from both sides of the aisle. We need prominent people to be meeting with those who are spreading misunderstanding, who are standing in the way of solutions, And they need to make the case one-on-one. Convince people to change their minds, so we can get on top of this. That's how uh, that's how minds are changed. That's how people are convinced. That's how we overcome something like COVID.
0: Um, well, Charlie, those are all great points. Um, I, I think back on, for me as a young sports fan, uh, basketball fan, growing up, and then when when Magic Johnson announced that that he had HIV, um, just how much of an impact that had on the sports world. And I remember watching that at the time. Coming home as a, I think I was 13 at the time, seeing that on the nightly news and thinking, oh my gosh, Magic Johnson's is going, going to die within a couple of years. And, yeah. you know, we have treatments for it, but the disease is still there. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, those, those prominent figures kind of waking people up. And now I, I did see that like Mitch McConnell is now tweeting out to wear a mask and Dick Cheney's tweeting out to, to wear a mask. Um, potentially that that starts to change things, but we all know where the most prominent person who could maybe send that message would be. Um, Charlie, thanks yeah. so much for taking the time to join us today and and talk about a very complicated issue and and hopefully clarify some things and, and spark some other discussions for a lot of our listeners and readers about um, something that maybe we don't deal with every day, but, you know, Funding comes at a state level for so many of these programs. It is something that, you know, we contribute to, even if the, the direct impact is not like right here in our backyard, at least we don't think it is. So thanks so much.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. And, you know, I would just encourage all your, your listeners, I, I know people want to be involved and help. One of the best things, you know, obviously you can go to cvg.org and, and support our organization, but one of the best things is just spreading the understanding, have conversations with people around you to help everybody understand violence is a health issue. If you could change the minds of people in your orbit, we could change the minds of everybody. And so just have these conversations among the people you know, among the people that trust you, and let's change people's minds so we can get on top of violence.
0: All right, thank you, Charlie, for having that conversation with us today.
1: Yes, my pleasure, take care.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Falls Podcast.